Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation Podcasts. In this episode, we will be discussing working smarter and also exploring productivity in today's digital workplace. I'm delighted to welcome Rahaf Hafouche, the Executive Director of the Red Thread Institute of Digital Culture and New York Times bestselling author. Rahaf, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Rahaf, you focus on the intersections between emerging technology, leadership and digital culture, and you also teach innovation and emerging business models at Sciences Politique School of Management and Innovation in Paris. And you were recently named to France's National Digital Council. I know you have a quest um, to help people break through the myths of busyness being the best thing for our creativity. And you wrote all about this in your third book, Hustle and Float, Reclaiming Creativity and Thriving in a World Obsessed with Work. And Hustle and Float gave a large-scale picture of the problem of employee burnout, but also how to reclaim creativity and had a playbook side to it around, you know, what we can put in place as individuals and organisations. And I often talk about bridging the gap between digital and human, so which skills will keep us relevant, and like the parallel of bridging the gap between productivity and creativity. So my first question has to be, you know, could, could you tell us a little bit about hustle culture and what it actually means? Sure. So hustle culture is the the set of beliefs and behaviors and signals that we have developed where we prioritize being busy almost above all else Mm -hmm. and not only working long hours, but working really hard. So hustle culture glorifies the process of working hard more than necessarily the end goal. Mm -hmm. So you will celebrate you'll see people celebrate, you know, waking up at 4am or spending 16 hours at their desk. Mm. And I find it really fascinating because we're not actually celebrating getting things done, right? We're celebrating just the length of time and the effort that we're spending working. Mm. And I found this to be very puzzling because you would think that we would celebrate efficiency and effortlessness and actually accomplishing things in a humane way. And the root cause of this is quite fascinating. And in Hustle and Float, I talk about these invisible forces, like how did these beliefs come to be? And Mm -hmm. for us, hustle culture is a result of historical forces. So our obsession with nonstop productivity as developed in the industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. It is partly done because of our media, where we glorify people who are self-made and ideologies like the American dream, where we tell people that if they work hard enough, they will be successful. Therefore, if they're not successful, it must be because they're not working hard enough. Mm -hmm. So that hard work becomes less about what you're actually trying to accomplish and becomes more as a signifier that you are worthy of your own success and you're deserving of that success and that you are signaling to other people that you are doing what is necessary in order to get ahead, in order to get big things done. Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I really like the analogy of we're just explaining how busy we are. We're not sort of measuring how effective or how efficient we're being. And if I look at Uh, new ways of working like agile which bring in this iterative loop and a different mindset and and I think I see organizations taking them and shoehorning it into let's just see how busy we can get in agile (laughs) what are your thoughts on that so what's very interesting is that because our culture 
we really like to get solutions. And what's funny is we like to get things done. So that means we're constantly on the lookout for new systems and new methodologies. Mm -hmm. And when those systems inevitably fail us, we think, oh, it wasn't the right system. And we just find another one and another one and another one. When in reality, there are some fundamental questions that we, the people using these systems need to ask ourselves. Mm -hmm. So for example, with agile, exactly to your point, the point of agile is to work in cycles. It's not to shoehorn people people with unrealistic demands. So Mm. agile is just the methodology, right? But if Mm. what you're asking people to do is beyond the scope of what can realistically be achievable in a reasonable amount of time, Mm. then you're set up to fail. And that's what I'm actually finding most people are doing is that regardless of how they're organizing themselves, there is a huge gap between what they think they can do and what they can actually do. Mm. And they're, you know, and so the systems are failing them because what they're being asked to do, especially at work, mm. is not actually amount of work that can fit in a regular day. And I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the pandemic was yeah. a huge scope creep for so many people yeah. where they were for a wide variety of reasons, whether it was layoffs or dealing with new technologies or figuring out remote work or digitizing stuff, whatever it was, they had to do all of that stuff, but it wasn't like they were given extra hours in the day. And I read research somewhere that said that the average individual was doing like more than their job responsibilities that they had pre-pandemic. So Mm. how can you look at people and try to look them in the eye with a straight face and talk to them about building innovation-centric cultures and about work-life balance when the expectations themselves are fundamentally flawed? Absolutely. And they're they're trying to fix the system as opposed to looking at it differently and looking at how they could work differently, aren't they? I mean, the the pandemic, yeah, I did have a question around what effects the pandemic has had on hustle culture more generally, because on the one hand, like you say, we see people doing, 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 doing and working even more. Um, And then on the other hand, we see people who have had time to do more thinking than they would normally do and are thinking about maybe doing something else, hence the great resignation and other trends that we're seeing. So, you know, what effect do you think the pandemic has really had on hustle culture? And, you know, what, what can we do to try and help that? Sure. So the pandemic was really interesting because in the early part of the pandemic, so early 2020, when everything was shut down and there was uncertainty for many people, myself included, despite the (laughs) crippling anxiety of not knowing what was happening, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, many of us were forced to stop. I mean, I don't know about you, but all of my, like everything, my work life came to a halt. Yeah, the same. And so we had these couple of months where all of a sudden, like we had free time. And for many people, people were grappling about what to do. I mean, obviously I want to also just point out to the privilege that I had in which like, I don't have kids, you know, I don't have elder care. And so I had free time, but a lot of people were at home, but still grappling with all of those responsibilities, particularly women, particularly underrepresented communities. But that aside, what we started noticing after the fact was after this pause, companies were like, well, okay, well, we've got to figure this out, right? We've got to open up businesses. We've got to get back to our customers. And so then there was this rush to digitize. Mm. And what I saw happening, and this is the digital anthropology part, is people started just digitizing what they were doing in the office. So a one-hour staff meeting became a one-hour Zoom meeting with no thought to format energy drain, Mm. um, how to to structure digital-first ways of connecting with people. Mm. So you started having people have extra meetings, being drained by tools, 
And what was really interesting is that for companies where being in the office was a big part of their culture, being in the office was a big part of how they signaled that they were productive, right? They came in early, they left late. We started to see an uptick in digital signaling. So more emails, more meetings being scheduled, more messages on the Slack, more active signals to let other people know that you were working. So while we had this pause in the beginning, what we actually found was that the pandemic impact really just highlighted whatever your underlying beliefs were. If your underlying beliefs before the pandemic was that you really had to prove to people that you you were working hard, you just did that using digital tools. Mm. And this is important to note because also what we've seen from, again, a privileged perspective is that people who had like a home office, who had a cottage in the woods, who had um, help at home, they were able to be like, wow, this is a really great way to have flexibility. Whereas there were a lot of people who had, you know, kids at home who had responsibilities. And we saw very unfortunately that the, that the pandemic had undone like decades Mm. of labor gains for women who were, you know, almost single-handedly taking on the burden of this labor. And so what I'm seeing now is a mix, right? And I know that's not the answer people like to hear. People like to hear that it did this or it did that. But the answer is that the the pandemic just amplified everything that was happening. So if you didn't have enough enough support, the pandemic amplified that. If you had increasing flexibility, the pandemic showed you that that was possible. So as a whole, we're now seeing like people saying, hey, a lot of the structures that we had put in place, like going to the office, for example, Mm. big point of contention these days, is that we don't have to do it in the same way that technology, if used properly, can be a way for us to have more flexibility and adaptability in our lives. What's interesting, going back to the underlying to the underlying belief systems is that companies that didn't have a lot of trust in their employees were telling them that they had to have their cameras on all day, for example, were using time tracking software. So the same tools that were designed to give people the potential for flexibility were also used to control them. Yeah. Which, which is a little bit like uh, the agile analogy, isn't it? <laughs> they want I mean, to do the- iterative cycles, but they put it back into waterfall. And I think it's interesting that you're saying the presencing element of workplace culture where you have to be seen to be working and you have to be there it just was translated into digital overload yeah i mean remember like sort of two things one is that the tools themselves are neutral yeah. right like how you you could there are a hundred different ways to run a zoom meeting right yeah. and so the, so there's no it, it's not that there's like an, an objective right way or an objective wrong way mm. there are ways that fit better with the culture of certain companies so the first part is the technology is, is is neutral which is why i spent so much time at hustle and float looking at the underlying belief systems yeah. of the people who use the technology mm. you can have two managers and if one of them doesn't trust people And I have heard from people who email me all the time telling me my boss expects me to have my camera on all day. So the same tool can be used to control and can be used to give freedom. The second thing I want to mention about belief systems and about work cultures is that we were burning out before the pandemic. I mean, in 2019, the World Health Organization categorized burnout as an occupational work hazard globally. And so I also think it's unfair for people to point and to say, well, the pandemic made us burnt out. No, there were severe incompatibilities Mm. with the way that we were working Mm. before the pandemic, but the pandemic just amplified all of them Mm. because we were starting to see very clearly, well, why should I be at the office if I can do deep work at home? Mm. Why should I drive and commute um, if I can have a good meeting with my colleagues? 
And what I really find frustrating, especially in the current context, this like big disconnect between what leaders want and what employees want, yeah. is that you 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 have employ you have leaders that are hearing data from their employees saying we want flexibility, and that yeah. are actually just ignoring that data, which is also fascinating because I bet if you asked any leader, they would say to you, "I make evidence based decisions. I let <laughs> the data help me make decisions," mm. and yet. We have data that says a four-day work week is just as effective, more effective than our current system. Leaders are ignoring that. We have data that says that remote work, when done properly, mm. can be great for productivity. They're ignoring that. And I think this really shows the resistance that we have to mm. getting away from hustle culture. So hustle mm. culture is so deeply ingrained that CEOs that are normally quite rational, logical people are going against that because the resistance is so high. Yeah. And it's based on fear, isn't it? It's the need to control. And of course, if you can't see things, you're not quite sure what's going on. And it brings me to your point of always uh, needing to understand your own unique work stories. So, you know, your own beliefs on what you believe about being successful, about work and about um, productivity. Can you walk us through what you explain around your understanding your own unique work stories and why it's so important? Yeah. So when I started researching Hustle and Float, I realized that all of us, are operating around a set of assumptions of what we have been told, right? About who's successful, what success looks like, what you need to do to be successful. And so all of these stories we've been told, we've sort of absorbed. And the way I kind of explain it to people is imagine that you are like a computer, right? And you have an operating system, you have an Mm -hmm. OS that's running in the background. And this OS, this operating system, just is running all sorts of codes that are the sum of everything that you've been told that you need to do to be successful. So, mm-hmm. and everyone's programming is a little bit different, right? Yeah. So, my parents were immigrants, right, to Canada. My parents immigrated from Syria to Canada. And so, I was always told that as an immigrant, in order to survive, you have to work doubly hard. Mm. So, that's a part of my programming. Mm. I grew up in North America. And so, I was told that if I want to work hard, if I want to be successful, I have to work hard. That's a part of my programming. Mm. And what ends up happening is we accumulate all of these stories around what we think we need to do, who we think we need to be. Mm. And for most of us, we never stop and like, look under the hood. We never stop. And we say, wow, let me take a look at all the narratives that I have accumulated over my life to actually see if they're still true. Mm. So for example, if you were a kid who grew up and you were, you, you know, one of the ways that you received love and approval from your parents was to always perform. If you were super praised for bringing home a great report card, if your parents were like, I'm so proud of you mm. for getting, being the first in the class, you might not know this, but you might've taken that need for validation through performance and through external recognition. And you might've embedded that into your core identity where your job title, your promotion, those are things that are directly linked to your self-worth. So if you don't take a second and be like, how am I judging my own success? How am I understanding my own work story? You might find yourself pursuing things and working in a way much like I did, where you were doing things that were harming yourself. You were doing things that were actually pushing you towards burnout without ever knowing why. And Mm. the only way that you can stop this behavior is by making the invisible visible, is by looking at those narratives and choosing intentionally, do I want to keep the story or do I not? Mm. I think it's hard, isn't it? Because, you know, you that that becomes your identity so much that that's how you present yourself to friends group and on social networks. And, you know, it's like how I am oh, really busy. And that means that you're doing well and that you're successful. 
how do, how do you suggest we can take a step back from that? I mean, yes, we need to look at our own narratives, but what if like my boss, my team, where I work, they're just not on the same page? What happens then? So I'm a, a big believer in, you know, zones of control, right? Mm. And each one of us has a zone that is within our control that we can uh, have an impact on our life. So if you know that your boss is just like not on the same page, there are certain things that you can do for yourself. For example, really being very intentional about your morning hours, right? Mm. Doing yourself a favor and not looking at your phone first thing. You can give yourself an hour in the morning. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a morning person. So I want to be clear. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you need to wake up and meditate and journal. Like mm-hmm. I just give myself an hour in the morning to just have a coffee. I take mm-hmm. a whole hour because it takes me that long to wake okay. up. <laughs> and so, you know, and so it's like, it's like, how can you set yourself up for success if you know you're, if you're going to have a hard day. Mm. And this is where we really challenge people's assumptions because I, I have worked with clients. I've worked in very hectic offices. I have worked with people that work in very hectic offices. So let's say you start off the morning with this hour where you do whatever it is that you want to do, right? Or maybe it's half an hour, whatever, how much time you need, you get to work. Let's say that, you know, everybody takes a coffee break. When you go to take a coffee break, even if it's only 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you leave your phone at your desk, you tell your team, going for a coffee back in 15, if you know, if it's that mm. important, you go without your phone, you, you have your cup of tea, you have your cup of coffee, you take a breath. If you're working at home or you're not in an office, maybe you just step outside for just 15 minutes, take a few deep breaths, stretch mm. your neck, come mm. back for lunchtime. Maybe you don't eat at your desk. Maybe you take 30 minutes. And once again, you leave your devices aside and you just give yourself the chance to recharge and recenter. Maybe you go for a walk. Maybe you do a workout, whatever it is. Mm. The point is, is that what I've noticed is that oftentimes it is us, the individuals that are putting these pressures and these unrealistic expectations on ourselves. And it's, and I, I have worked with clients, so I have data to back this up nine times out of 10 if you communicate with your team, most people will be okay for you to not be available for like 30 minutes or 15 minutes, right? Mm. So mm. if you're in a meeting with a client, you can be unavailable then. So if you say, I'm just going to be unavailable for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, I find it's about communicating expectations, especially with your boss and with your team. Mm. But if mm. you do that, then all of a sudden, if you're giving yourself the chance to recharge during the day, you're going to find that you're going to end the day with a lot more energy than you started. You're going to find that you have more concentration, better focus, and better ideas. Mm. At the end of the day, you might say, again, talk to your team. You might say, after 7 p.m., I'm not looking at work emails anymore. If there's an emergency, call me on the phone. But what ends up happening, and this goes back to the technology piece, the digital anthropology Mm -hmm. piece, is that we have developed an addiction to being on our devices all the time. And we Mm -hmm. have developed a culture where we think everything is urgent and everything needs a response. And for people listening, I want you to think about your own inbox and genuinely and truthfully answer the question, what percentage of the emails in your inbox are actually urgent? Mm. What percentage of emails cannot wait? If you received all your emails at 7 p.m., you know, how many of them can actually wait till 9 a.m. the next morning? And what you'll find is that we are putting these expectations on ourselves of being constantly responsive, whereas we can control little bits of our energy and time. So I Mm. can't control how many meetings my boss schedules or when he needs things for me or whatever it Mm. is. But I certainly, every individual has a zone of control, even if it's only five minutes 
where they can put their device down and take care of their energy. And I think that is the piece that we need to figure it out, figure out too, because so many people point at their bosses, point at their workplace, not realizing that they're taking breaks while scrolling on their phone. They're answering emails at 9 and 10 p.m. They're, you know, doing stuff on the weekends. They're waking up and the first thing they're doing is diving into their inbox. Those are choices mm-hmm. that they are making based on an expectation of urgency that isn't actually true. And when I work with teams, one of the things that we do around this concept called digital norms is we actually sit with the team and we agree as a team, what is an emergency? (laughs) What necessitates interrupting people? How are we contacting people? What is the escalation plan? Like, what is our plan when something's an emergency? And what always fascinates me is how different people's opinions of what constitutes an emergency is. Mm. And so if you go through a team and you agree then there's safety and security because you don't feel stressed out because you're all on the same page about what is an emergency and what we're going to do in an emergency and who gets contacted in an emergency. And that clarity reduces the need for us to be constantly connected to our devices. Yeah. And and I think it's about putting boundaries. So there we have collective boundaries. So there's clarity and confidence in those collective boundaries and therefore commitment. But we still have to come back to ourselves, don't we, is what I'm hearing. So it's my assumptions about my definition of success And, you know, it is hard to break away from, I'll just have a look at how many likes I've got. I'll just have a look at how many people have reacted, or I'll just make sure that I answer tonight so that he or she knows that I'm working. And I think, like you say, we can say it's the system. We can say, oh, that's how it it happens here, or I have to do that, or this is what he or she expects of me. But at the end of the day, I'm coming back to your point around owning your own work stories and understanding your own uh, belief system and what's, you know, where you're getting your validation from. Yeah. I mean, the reason why this problem is so complicated is because we have to address it on Mm. multiple levels. We have to address it. So every individual needs to look at their own work story and see Mm. how they are pushing themselves in a way that's not healthy for them. And that means like reprogramming ourselves to think that any time not spent being productive is a waste. That means reclaiming breaks and reclaiming intentional recovery as a part of high performance. That's something that only you can do. That's the first level. Second level is companies. Companies need to look at how their policies, how their use of their technologies is either promoting deep work and concentration or promoting distractions and interruptions, if they're actually promoting confidence or promoting control. So that's the organization level. And then finally, as a societal level, we all have to agree that some of the stories that we're telling each other about success are quite harmful. When I hear about a billionaire waking up at 6 a.m. as though that is the reason for his Mm. success and not inherited wealth, luck, connections, access to opportunities, that we're doing people a disservice. And so this is why the change has to happen on all three layers, because what happens if you change on the company level, right? But not on the individual level, you'll have what happens Mm -hmm. at Netflix, where Netflix gave people unlimited paid vacation days and the individuals didn't take them because they were afraid that if they took those vacation days, they would be judged as being not committed to the company's mission by their Mm -hmm. colleagues. So so the answer isn't just policy. The answer isn't just work stories. The answer isn't just to stop glorifying billionaires. The answer is all of those things and little pieces all Mm -hmm. the time. And I like the idea of, you know, you, how you frame rest and recovery and rejuvenation is actually a part of a high performance cycle. And I know you talk about it in Humane Productivity in your LinkedIn course. And I know there's research behind this performance cycle. Could you just walk us through the performance cycle, particularly the step four, where this is an integral part of actually being more productive? 
Yes. So one of the biggest disservices that productivity and hustle culture has done is that it expects us to work nonstop, right? Mm-hmm. You come into work at 9 a.m. and you're finished at 5 or 6 p.m. And in that, you know, during that day, with the exception of lunch, let's just say you're expected to be working all the time. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to, what we're finding out now from neuroscience is that our brains are not wired to do nonstop work, especially mm-hmm. with high cognitive load work. So, mm-hmm. for example, if you're problem solving or collaborating on teams or researching or working with clients, like all of the stuff that knowledge work is, knowledge work takes a big toll on your your brain, you can't do it nonstop. Mm. So what we're finding out is that the brain has only a limited amount of time where it is in like flow. But after, you know, that, that energy runs out, it is just, it just needs time to rest and recover. And what most people think is, oh, I'm going to work for four hours and then take a lunch break. That's my recovery. And what we're actually finding out is you might, you know, your performance cycle might be an hour. So after working on something for an hour, you might need a 30 minute break in order for you to recover. And that 30 minute break is not wasted time. That 30 minute break is essential in giving you the chance to like refill your tanks and recharge your batteries and regain your focus. And what happens is when we don't recharge and we just work, try to hold flow for an entire day, we end up hurting our ourselves. We end up losing energy, losing focus, losing concentration and making more mistakes. So the performance cycle is four stages that everybody goes through when they're mm. working on a hard task. Mm. The first stage is the ramp up, which is, you know, you start a task, you're excited, you're kind of like just getting into the, you're settling in. That's sort of the upward tick. Mm. There's flow, the the phase that everyone is obsessed with, which is it's your optimal working. This is when, you know, you are in the groove, it's flowing, time's flying by, you're at your best. Once you get out of of flow, it's not like a switch, right? Flow is a gradual, once you get out of flow, it's a gradual decline when you start to get tired. Mm. Eventually you get to the, the, that's the, the third stage, the sort of ramp down the fatigue. And then the fourth stage is you have to stop and take a break. It's intentional recovery, which gives you enough energy that you can then use to start that cycle all over again. And what my research has shown is while every single person has the same four stages of a performance cycle, each person might have different amounts of time that they spend in each of the stages. So for example, my cycle is quite long. So I, I, you know, that what that means is it takes me a while to get into groove and to get into flow takes me say like 20 or 30 minutes to get into flow. I can hold flow for like, say an hour Mm. and then I come out of it, but I have other people who I've researched whose entire cycle is like 30 minutes. It takes them five minutes to get into flow. They're in flow for 15 to 20 minutes and then they come out and then they need a five minute break and they do it all Mm. over again. But that insight, so compare me with the long cycle, with my friend with the short cycle, there's no right or wrong here. It's just Mm -hmm. how we work best. But we would both structure our day quite differently in order to give ourselves the best chance of working in alignment with our bodies and in alignment with our energies. Mm. And what, what do you think that means for hybrid working models then? And in terms of the sort of digital element where, yes, people can do deep work from home, but maybe... It doesn't mean the same thing in terms of when when they're going to be at their best for meetings and things like that. So what would your advice be there? So once again, I go back to digital norms. I have mm. a course on Skillshare called Developing Norm Digital Norms for Happy Teams. And essentially what this is about is communication. Mm-hmm. I believe that when you're with a team, if you're leading people or working with people, you should take some time to understand what everyone's work cycles and work preferences are. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that you can accommodate every single person all the time. (laughs) It just means that as a whole, you get an understanding of 
what people's energy cycles are like. So for example, mm. I had a client and she had uh, weekly team meetings at 9 a.m., right? Every every week mm. there was a, a 9 a.m. meeting. When she did this conversation with her team, she realized that the majority of people on her team, she had 10 people and eight of those people were night owls. Eight of those people were like, I hate early morning meetings. I can't think. My brain doesn't work. And she mm. was like, huh. So all she did was move that same meeting from you know, from the morning to later in the afternoon, very simple move. And it ended up improving morale. It ended up improving performance and it ended up making people just in a generally better mood because Mm -hmm. they weren't being forced to work outside of their comfort, you know, outside of their creative Mm -hmm. alignment hours. Mm -hmm. And so those are really simple things that you can't find out unless you ask. Again, if you're working across time zones, if you have constraints, I'm not saying you're going to be able to meet all of these accommodations all the time, but mm. I do believe that every team can negotiate something where at least it's accommodating to as many people as possible most of the time. And mm. so you can, I've seen teams say, for example, who have really long performance cycles, get really clear and be very intentional with their meeting policies. So they, they have meeting policies where they don't, you can't just schedule a meeting anytime you want. There are days mm. for meetings and there are days for deep work. Mm. I've had companies who have scheduled, who have said, why is the default meeting 60 minutes? And you know our new default meeting is 30 minutes and every 30 minute meeting has to have an agenda. I've had people say, we're not doing meetings you know, before 10 and or after four to, in order to accommodate people with children. Mm. Right. And so it's really about like, we can use the technology any way that we want, but how are you going to know what the right strategy is if you don't know how your people are working? And many managers are not taking the time to understand how their team's preferences are impacting how they're getting their goals done. Which brings me back to the definition of creating a more inclusive environment and understanding people's lived experiences. And if you don't ask people, you'll never know. You'll never know what what their preferences are or how they're feeling about what's going on. So, I mean, essentially taking time to create that communication, which you've already underlined the importance of, of communication, is key, is what I'm hearing also to working less to deliver more. Let's put it that way. Well, remember, this requires a mindset shift, right? Because traditionally, the performance systems we have used in organizations to measure time, to set schedules, to set goals, those systems were based on legacy, like leftover from the Industrial Mm. Revolution. And Mm. the Industrial Revolution was all about standardization. It was all Mm. about everybody doing the same thing and everybody doing the same task in the same way. Mm. That is no longer the case for knowledge work. Mm. So the shift is an understanding that not every one is going to do the same work in the same way, but you can get consistent high quality results if you give people the chance to be flexible, to build systems that work for them. So mm. The mindset shift is moving from, you know, one policy for everybody. Everybody is in at nine. Everybody's out at this time to something a little bit more flexible. And I think that is what a lot of workers are intuitively asking for. They're not yeah. asking for never coming back to the office. They're not asking for never meeting in their team with their teams in person. I think we've all realized that offices are important in certain capacities, that mm. being physically with people is important mm. in many cases. I think what I'm hearing people say is, let me build a way of working that, that is aligned with my life, my responsibility 
possibilities, my energy, my needs, my family. And the companies that are rejecting that, they're the ones that are losing talent. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's so much demand now. Why would you stay at a company where the policy doesn't make sense? And that's Mm -hmm. also a fundamental question. The reason we're reacting against these policies is that we've seen an alternative way of working, but now they want us to go back to the old way that was Mm -hmm. inefficient. That was distracting, that didn't make sense, that made it harder for us to live our lives and juggle all of our responsibilities. And here's the kicker. They can't really tell us why other Mm. than, well, that's the way we've done it before. Mm. I mean, that is the biggest challenge, isn't it, for leaders, particularly senior management and senior leaders on, you know, how can I answer that question, firstly? And secondly, what does it look like if I do? I mean, I would ask every leader if I could, if I had a direct line, you know, I would ask them one question. I would ask them, where is the root of the resistance coming from? What, like, where, what is the resistance saying? Because Mm -hmm. if I'm a, a CEO and I have employees writing me letters, thousands of employees writing me letters, telling me this is what we need to do our best work, right? If my response is no, well, I, I would want to ask them why. And I think it's very hard for them because then what you're realizing is you're, you're, you're going into like insecurities, right? A fear of, I'm, I'm afraid that people won't do their work. Well, mm. that doesn't make any sense. If you're afraid people won't do their work, then that says the systems of performance are not aligned with the type mm. of work you want your people to do. Because there are many ways to make sure that remote workers are doing their work and contributing. There are many examples of remote only companies that have excellent performance. So you start ticking through all of these fears and that's when you start to see the resistance. Because what I've heard unofficially from people who have been having these conversations with their C-suite, with their Mm. executives, is that they have been used to working in offices in certain ways. They like being in the office. They like seeing busy people at desks. It makes them feel important. Mm. And that is the reason why they want to keep things the same. Mm. And Mm. that is why it's so important for every single person, especially leaders, to deep dive into their own work stories, their own expectations, their own resistance, because there's no reason why you should be making a decision when the data says that this is what people want. And when done right, it's going to improve performance. If you're going against logic, then I think you have to be self-aware enough and brave enough to go and look at the uncomfortable reasons why. Yeah, it is about bravery and it is about getting uncomfortable with being uh, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I know it's a messy human problem, isn't it? But do you see a difference in your research linked to national culture or not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what's interesting is that every culture has some aspect of like this working hard element, which is quite normal. Uh, For example, in North American cultures, we're very individualistic. So we tell people, um, if you work hard, you will be successful. And so you have the responsibility to work hard in order to ensure your own success. Mm -hmm. In certain parts of Asia, what you see is that you have to work really hard because if you don't work really hard, you will let down the collective, you will let down the team. Mm -hmm. And so you have places is where, you know, for example, like Japan, where taking a sick day or leaving early is shown as like a betrayal or letting Mm. your team down. Mm -hmm. So very different motivations, but the overwork is quite similar. I would say that in Europe where I live now, I live in France now, there's also one of the reasons I moved here is because Europe in general has a much better approach to balance. You get mm-hmm. 25 vacation days, mm-hmm. you know, there's summer holidays. And I think that also stems from the sense of safety that we feel. I notice yep. that oftentimes cultures where they have big overwork cultures like the U S there's a survival imperative there, yep. right? In America, many people forget like 
healthcare is linked to your job. If you lose your job, you lose your healthcare. There isn't a big social safety net. If you, no. you know, if you lose your, your job, you can lose your home. Mm. And that also spins a very different element of fear that pushes people to continue to work hard out of safety. Whereas I find in other countries, for example, like France, there is a bit of a social safety net. So even mm. if you lose your job, you'll never have to worry about not being able to go to the doctor. You'll never have to worry about getting your insulin. You'll never have to Mm. worry about getting medicine. Mm. So I think that is also really important because jobs in certain places of the world are so essential to your survival. And I was reading horror stories in the U.S. about people Mm. losing their jobs and being unable to pay for like chemotherapy. Absolutely. Yeah. And it puts your brain into a completely different place from a neuroscience perspective, doesn't it, in terms of how you're going to manage what you're feeling? Oh, my goodness. And I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, your state of mind, burnout from a from a neuro from a neurological level. What it mm. does is it like diminishes your executive functions and mm. it amplifies your amygdala. So your sense of survival, your fight or flight or freeze mm. instincts are at an all time high. How can you be creative or joyful or, you know, innovative if you're constantly worried about your life? Mm. And also for all of us, even us here in Europe, there's emerging research that shows that the past two years, our nervous systems have been dysregulated to a point where we don't even know what the impacts are going to be. Our nervous systems as human beings were never meant to hold such periods of uncertainty and fear and anxiety for such a sustained period of time. Mm. It is impacting our stress. It is impacting adrenaline. It is impacting cortisol levels. It is impacting our amygdalas. It's compromising our capacity to make decisions. What most people don't know also is that when you are burning out or when you are in a, in a constant state of fight or flight, people, your, your capacity to connect with yeah. people is reduced. Yeah. Yeah. Which during the pandemic, that was the polarity, wasn't it? We were completely cut off from people, therefore needed to connect. But we were so anxious and so in a state of uncertainty that we couldn't necessarily connect. So, yeah, absolutely. And that's so this is why even when people are like, well, what do we do? It's like I always want to tell companies like there's no going back to normal anymore. I think we we need to Mm -hmm. give people the time to regulate their nervous system. And here's the thing, regulating your nervous system. How do you regulate your nervous system? Deep breaths, long walks, rest sleep, right? All of the things that our work culture devalues is actually contributing to our state of of not really being well. And that's the most frustrating thing about hustle culture Mm. is that hustle culture takes the signals that your body are sending you, the signals where in any normal case, you would say, huh, my eyes are starting to hurt. My back is starting to hurt. I'm feeling a bit tired. I'm feeling a bit, you know, like, like like I'm feeling a, a bit stressed. This is the perfect time that my body's telling me for me to step back, recover, take a second, recenter and try again, which would be the normal response. Instead, hustle culture says those signs are just signals that says that you are deserving of your success. So push through. So hustle culture encourages us to ignore the signals of our bodies, which ends Mm. up hurting us in the long term because burnout over the long term has huge impacts. It's linked to inflammation. It's linked to heart disease. It's linked to depression. It's linked to anxiety. It's linked to heart attacks. Like mm. what we're essentially doing is we're glorifying working ourselves to death. Yeah. <laughs> and it's seen as weakness, isn't it? So, you know, strong leaders push through, strong leaders go beyond pain strongly. And I think, you know, like you say, you get into this situation where really we're working ourselves to death. Yeah. I mean, listen to the violence of the language. Yeah. Grind, crush it. Mm. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's so 
awful. Mm. And then you end up, then we have this big disconnect because you have like books like The Five Regrets of the Dying by by Bonnie Ware. And I don't hear a single regret of, I wish I spent more time on more Zoom calls. I wish I'd answered more emails. So we're also robbing people of Mm. a meaningful life in a way where we're getting them so wrapped up in their identity that they're Mm. compromising their relationships, their health, their free time, their capacity to feel joy. So for what? So you can brag that you pulled really long hours. It's so sad to me. It's so sad to me that we're robbing people of their ability to just enjoy their life because they're so busy rushing from Mm. goal to goal to goal, from to do, to to do, to to do. And what I say in humane productivity is productivity is not the point. Productivity for productivity's sake is not the point. My point of creating humane productivity is to get big things done, but to live a life that I like, to live a life of meaning, of joy, of connection, of love, of exploration, of discovery. And yet all we tell people is, well, here's Mm. how you can shove more work into your day. I think it's awful. Yeah. So, I mean, basically we're normalizing it, aren't we? which is exactly your point. We're celebrating. Yes. We're celebrating yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know that you're all this research, you're working on a book called Humane Productivity. When will it be out? It's probably going to be out next year okay. at some point. Um, mm-hmm. So the, some of the concepts I have in the LinkedIn course that I've created, but Humane Productivity is a follow-up to Hustle and Float because mm-hmm. Hustle and Float was really about understanding what the heck was going on <laughs> with myself personally mm-hmm. and to contextualize it just so listeners can understand i'm like a technologist and so creativity and productivity and understanding the work relationships that was never like something i set out to do mm-hmm. it just happened because i got really sick i got burnt out and mm-hmm. i was like well i can't keep doing all the things i want to do without changing my behavior mm-hmm. so hustle and flow is really about unpackaging the relationship between ourselves and work and guiding people and understanding their own work story. Mm. And then after Hustle and Float came out, I started getting a lot of clients saying, well, we want to do this for ourselves. And what I realized is that with the performance cycle is there's no perfect system. There's just systems that are perfect for the individuals that make them. And so humane productivity gives everybody the tools, all these different tools and frameworks so Mm. that they can build their own system from the ground up so Mm. that they don't have to fit their lives into a rigid system that was made by somebody else, that they're creating systems that actually enable them to live the life they want to lead. And so my humane productivity system might look completely different from yours. They'll have the same principles, but how we apply those principles are really different. Mm. And the way I tell people is like, humane productivity is like giving you a canvas. We give you the entire palette and then you Mm. decide what you want to paint. Yeah. What's right for you and the model that works for you. Yes. Yeah. So no more cookie cutter morning routines, no more cookie cutter inbox strategies, no more cookie cutter designing your week. We really need to give people this, this idea and empower them to build their own systems. And especially for me, and I don't know if any of your listeners are like multi-hyphenates, I do a lot of different things. Mm. So having a to-do system or having a workflow system that looks the same every day doesn't work for me because, you know, some days I'm teaching, some days I'm writing, some days I'm Mm. consulting, some days I'm traveling. So how do you get people or how do you empower people to make consistent progress on the important things when every day looks different, when every week looks different. And I've got all the tools to help people do that. Excellent. I think it's great that it starts with the person and it's their responsibility individually to understand what works for them and then put that in place before they look at how they can do that as a collective. I think that I think that's really important. No more if you get up at five o'clock, 
every day and do some exercise and then work for five hours, you'll be successful. So I really like the idea of normalizing the fact that everybody's different and it doesn't mean that it's better or worse. It's just different. Well, you know, I'll say one last thing, which which I think is really interesting. We spent all this time learning, right? You learn about business, you read mm. business books, you study, and so many people don't spend any amount of time being curious about learning about themselves. Yeah. And so the <laughs> fundamental point of humane productivity is that you know you best, mm. but many people don't know themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, when we, th- there are exercises um, in the LinkedIn course, there are exercises also um, in the book where I guide you through like, have you ever asked yourself, what is my ideal day? What is my mm. energy peaks? What do I need to be great? What type of work? Like just really assessing and building a, a knowledge base about yourself. Because once you have that, then it's very clear what system is going to empower you. And most people don't do that. They're so busy looking for external solutions outside of themselves that they jump from planner to planner, from framework to framework, from strategy to strategy. Mm. And then they wonder why it doesn't work. And Mm. for you, I mean, sorry, for me, if you remember, I told you I have a very long performance cycle. I never could work. I could, the Pomodoro system can never work for me because Mm. I realized it was too short for my cycle. So I would do it. Everyone was recommending it. It wasn't effective for me. And I didn't understand why Mm -hmm. until I realized that my cycle is too long for 25 minutes, but that if I did the same thing, but for 45 minutes, for 60 minutes, I could be more effective. Mm. And, And since you wrote Hustle and Flow in 2019, have you seen progress with the organizations you work with? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have companies like LinkedIn and Nike Mm -hmm. who are giving people global weeks off where everybody Mm -hmm. shuts down. And by the way, the global shutdown, that is the response to unlimited working, to to unlimited Mm -hmm. paid days, Mm -hmm. right? Because instead Mm -hmm. of saying, take vacation days and feel guilty, companies are saying, everybody's taking vacation, everybody's shutting down, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's really great steps. We've seen some incredible pilots about this four-day work week. I'm so excited about it. The data is showing that people are more productive and more efficient, which is Mm -hmm. incredible. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to experiment with that in my own life this Mm -hmm. summer to try to fit some four-day work weeks just to see what Mm -hmm. it feels like for me. And eventually in 2023, my goal is to transition myself and my practice to a four-day work week because the data is so great. Mm. So I'm starting to see change. And from a business perspective, I mean, I hate that it had to come to this, but companies are are finally starting to realize that burnt out workers are not good for the company. Yeah, absolutely. You can't fix customer plot. uh, You can't fix customer issues. You can't spot emerging trends. You can't be agile. You can't do great work if you are sleep deprived and exhausted. And so they're Mm. also starting to realize that it's better for everybody for morale, for, for quality of work, for innovation levels, when your people are well-rested. Mm, absolutely. It's great. I can't wait to see what, what happens as we put it into place and as it becomes sort of the new balance, if you like, in, instead of the new normal. Time is running. What would your final call to action be for all change makers and hustle culture junkies listening? You know, how, how could they start working less? I think the the biggest, most important first step is for people to start asking themselves some uncomfortable questions about, you know, does your title give you a sense of validation? Mm. What how, When you tell people you're really busy, what are you actually saying? How does it make you feel? In Hustle and Float, there's actually a chapter that has a list of questions yeah. that guide you in having this conversation. And I always think that's the first step because I don't think you can do anything until you have brought those invisible forces and made them mm. visible for yourself. Because once you understand, oh, wow, like when I tell people I'm really busy, 
what I'm actually saying is I'm important. I'm invested in my success. I want to be seen. I want to contribute. And is there a way for me to get that validation in a different way? So for example, in my friend group, we have banned saying, I'm so busy. Mm. We have banned bragging about how hard we're working because we understand what the underlying issues are. So we actually talk about our work and our productivity quite differently. And that made a big difference because I never realized how much we talked about our busyness just casually before. Mm. So little changes like that, pay attention to how you talk about your own work, how you talk to your friends about work, how you talk to your colleagues, pay attention to what makes you proud. When you pull like a 12 hour day or a 14 hour day, are you like, yes, I'm getting it. I'm going to be successful. Or are you like, wow, I need to better resource my time so that this doesn't happen to me again. Mm. So these Mm. are, you know, pay attention to who your work idols are. Who do you admire? Are you admiring, you know, I don't know, a big CEO because they, they got up and they've pulled hundred hour work weeks for the last 15 years. Like, are you admiring work ethic in people? And it's, again, there's no right or wrong answers here. All there is, is an assessment and you might do this audit and you might be like, you know what? I'm fine with everything. Mm. And if that's the case, you do you congratulations, like really live your best life. But I think it's about the choice. We have to choose what beliefs we're going to carry forward and what Mm. beliefs no longer serve us. And that choice is what makes the biggest difference. Yeah, it's the deliberate choice, isn't it? Yes. Raf, thank you so much for coming and sharing your insights and research with others. Where can people find out more about you and what you do? The easiest way is uh, my website, which is rahafharfush.com, but I'm on most social networks, so p- please feel free to connect with me there. I'm at Fushi, F-O-U-S-H-Y on Instagram, and rahafharfush everywhere else. Excellent. Thank you very much. I'll invite our listeners to first think about what you've said and look at their audit and then connect with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the insights it gave you. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Mm-hmm.